1: Good morning and welcome to this special episode of The Daily Oz. It's Friday the 13th of October. I'm Zara and there's just one day to go before Australia will vote on an Indigenous voice to Parliament. Every day this week, we've brought you The Voice Explained. If you're listening to the podcast for the first time this week, I recommend starting with part one where we go back and look at where the idea for The Voice came from. If you're up to speed, I have something special for our final episode. Earlier this week, I was joined at a live event by two First Nations journalists, Carly Williams and Isabella Higgins. Hello, good evening. Thank you so, so much to everybody for coming. I think that first and foremost, it is nights like this that really undercut the traditional stereotype that young people don't give a shit. And I think seeing everyone in this room who is eager to learn, eager to inform themselves is just credit to all of you. So thank you for coming. We are joined tonight by two exceptional journalists. Carly Williams is a Quandamooka woman and a journalist with the ABC's National Indigenous Affairs team. Prior to this, she was a senior editor at HuffPost Australia and she's worked at the Australian Associated Press and Pacific magazines. Isabella Higgins is a well-known journalist who you might have seen from bomb shelters in Ukraine this year, because that is where she has spent much of the year as the National Indigenous Affairs Correspondent. She is now Australia's first Torres Strait Islander Europe Correspondent, working for ABC News. So we are just so glad to have these two exceptional journalists here today, so please welcome them <laughs> welcome. Alright, so tonight we are not telling anybody how to vote. We are just sharing a bit of the information that these two journalists have amassed over their careers and their personal lives. So there are some QR codes uh, that you can scan if you wanna ask some questions. We do have quite a few coming through. So what type of people will be in the voice giving advice what sort of advice will they be giving who wants to answer that one well, We've it's received... a
0: million dollar question that one yeah. who's going to be elected we don't know who exactly uh, we know that they will if we are believing these design principles and that's what it looks like it will be representatives from all the different states and territories remote
2: and regional people two from torres strait and then one person to represent Torres Strait Islander mob on the mainland. This is from that report, the blueprint. This is how it could work. That's all we've got to go on. And the Indigenous Affairs Minister did
0: say she would give it a few key priorities, which was housing, education and employment. The remit of it, it's not clear. Carla, you had an example.
2: Yeah, Tony McAvoy, who's an Indigenous barrister, he uses this example quite a bit. And he says, OK, so say the Parliament is looking at superannuation. And access to superannuation and potentially lowering the age that people can access their super. Well, if the voice to parliament advisory body was up, they could say, oh, well, you know, this is something that's been on our mob's mind forever because Indigenous people have a life expect... Like, uh, my life expectancy is eight years lower than a non-Indigenous woman. So... Tony McAvoy says the voice could advise executive government and the parliament and say, well, while we're changing this age or while we're trying to get this bill over the line, let's take into account that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people hardly get to enjoy their super at all because they die before they retire. So why don't we lower that? You know, they should be 55 or they should be 58. And, you know, that, that's just an example But then there could be, you know, other issues that they advise on that don't affect the
0: rest of the population. I think that question, though, like if this gets up and we vote yes, these will be the conversations we're having as a nation and they won't be answered immediately. Like this will play out over months and
1: years as this model is legislated
0: and as it gets up, if it were to be voted yes.
1: I'll just read out another question, which is certainly something that people have asked the Daily Oz a lot, which is that there are (laughs) MPs, there is a minister who are Indigenous people themselves, and some of the questions that emerge are are those people not providing a voice in Parliament. So can you explain why a voice might be different to, for example, a standard Member of Parliament being elected while also being Indigenous?
0: One of the biggest differences is most of our MPs come from a political party that often binds them to a position. They're also there to represent the views of their electorate it would be quite different to say someone who is independently elected just to speak for their community. They're not bound to any of those party politics principles. I mean, I think there's 11 Indigenous MPs and do we think that's representative of all of the states, territories, regions and
2: experiences? And they could be out you know, by the next parliament.
1: Can you just tell us a bit about what sort of issues we can expect? Is there anything else we know about the remit of what The Voice could advise on?
2: I spoke to a few youth workers, uh, First Nations people who work with kids, and one was a no-voter and one was a yes-voter. Cheryl kickett she's a Noongar woman from WA. Uh, she runs basketball programs, after-school programs to keep Aboriginal kids engaged and busy. She's been doing this for a long time. She's got data that shows that it works. But she says, my investment bursts are every six months. Sometimes we'll get 12 months. Sometimes we'll get two years. And it's like, whoa, party. But every single (laughs) six months or to 12 months, she has to reapply for these grants just to keep the lights on, even though she is doing great things with Indigenous youth. So she says, if we have a voice, it will make my job a lot easier and we can funnel... The investments to places where it's working and that should be good for every australian taxpayer because she is funneling up to you know her local voice representative who's talking i think we Senate should Department. say as well that that is a hypothetical of it how hypothetical. some people would like the voice
0: to operate but these are all hypotheticals at this point
2: and then ian brown from the gomori nation uh, in northwest new south wales up in Moree. He said, "Well, it's just advice. Grassroots organisations have been advising governments for decades, and do they listen? A lot of the time, no. Uh, so he is—he's like, I think we need localised, state-based treaties first. He didn't want a voice. So that's two people who work with youth with two different arguments."
1: Isabella, can you just talk us through, because when we asked people for their questions ahead of this event, quite a few that came through were about treaty and whether it passes or it doesn't pass, what does that mean for a potential treaty? So we're
0: definitely not voting on a treaty and it's not clear how a yes vote would progress to a treaty. Some say if a yes vote got up and you had a voice to parliament, they would advise a federal government on how to make a treaty. But voting yes doesn't mean that treaty happens. Treaty processes are happening all around the country. There's a number of states that are already working with First Nations people to make a treaty. It's about recognition of who the First Peoples were, and then it's about formally agreeing to how you share sovereignty, how you share power, how you share land, which is why it is very important to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people as the First Peoples of this land.
1: But there is nothing to say that a yes vote would necessarily propel Australia towards a treaty, you know. Every state, I believe, other than New South Wales, is already on track for for a treaty and new south wales is having some talks as well but no it's not a clear and linear
0: path if we look at the uluru statement from the heart that came out of that historic convention they talk about a process of voice treaty truth. So putting in place a voice to parliament, then considering what treaties look like and also pursuing a truth-telling process. So it's an ambition of the architects of the Uluru Statement from the Heart, but voting yes doesn't necessarily kickstart something. But the treaty discussion's been around about as long as the constitutional recognition debate's been around. I mean, people might know the iconic song from... your parents backyard barbecue yeah (laughs) we've all had the karaoke to that song but you know still a banger it's a banger (laughs) um
1: i'm just reading out some more of the questions it feels strange that as a non first nations person i have a right to decide on the rights of first nations people Is the referendum a fair process for this? And while answering this, I would love one of you to just explain the process of a referendum, what is needed for a referendum to pass, because three quarters of this room, if not all of them, have not voted in a referendum before. 6.7
2: million Australians. Anyone under the age of 42 has not voted in a referendum.
1: We've got a lot to learn and quickly. So there's been 44
0: referendums in Australia. A constitution was made in 1901. I don't know if anyone in this room has actually seen the Australian constitution institution it's down in Canberra you can't put light on it you can't touch it it's actually like it's fancier and a bit cooler than you realize it's actually the yeah. the 81 As if
1: we've all, all just been thinking about how fancy yeah it was, yeah
0: it's got but it has it's got yeah. like little dangling things yeah. yeah Queen Victoria signed it um so yeah it was made in 1901 and s- It's not easy to physically interact with it, but it's not easy to change it either. So 44 times a government has said to Australia, should we do this? Only eight times they were successful. The most successful was in 1967, which was asking Australians to vote on whether Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people should be included in the official population count. So it's not like this is the first time that every other Australian has got a say on the lives of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. For a referendum to be successful, you need the majority of Australians to vote for it, but you also need the majority of the states. So you need at least four of the six states to have a majority support for it. And that was created as sort of a protection for the smaller states, so that it wasn't just the really popular states that controlled and ruled constitutional reforms.
2: But going back to that Uluru Convention in 2017, and this is coming up a lot because, you know, a lot of my non-Indigenous family and friends say, oh, well, you know, I heard some Indigenous people don't want this. And at that historic 2017 Uluru Convention, there was seven people who walked out, and, you know, the 250-odd back in the room wanted the sequence of reforms to be voice treaty truth. But this small group of people didn't want that, and that was Lydia Thorpe, she was there. Fred Hooper, who you might see talking on TV. Fred Hooper wanted truth-telling to come first, and for him, that looks like King Charles coming out here and apologising to First Nations people for, you know, colonisation
0: which is interesting too. I mean there's figures out there that only one
2: in 6
0: Australians regularly have contact with an Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander person and it's it is really uncomfortable for First Nations people through the course of this debate to have your identity debated to have, like, your friends ask you really uncomfortable questions. I mean, I've got really close family and friends who were racially harassed when they were casting their vote and said to me, this is the first time I've heard some of these racial slurs since I was in primary school. So it is really uncomfortable. It's a really tough time. I mean, some people might remember from the same-sex marriage postal survey, again, it's having people's identities, their lives, the way they choose to live as fodder for national
2: debate, it's, it's not fun. Yeah, keep in mind there's um, indigenous black queer people who have gone through this twice in their lifetime now, so yeah. check on those mates.
1: So somebody has asked, to give weight to impartiality, what would each of you say is one negative side of voting yes? And I might just reframe that. Can we perhaps go into some of those arguments around the no vote perhaps a bit more um, and in more depth than what you've heard in local communities about why people might be voting no?
2: Reasons I've heard for voting no from some mob is they want treaty first, it's not as inclusive as they'd like it to be. Those are worthy, reasonable, factual reasons I've heard people mob voting. I don't really want to talk about some of the other reasons I've heard people voting no. And can you add anything
1: else on that, Isabella, on perhaps what some of the people you've been speaking to who might be voting no where they're coming from, what their views on the matter might be?
0: I mean, I think like the rest of the community, Ah. there was a period of education within the Indigenous community. I mean, we just said 250 delegates were at that historic convention. That means a whole lot of us weren't in the room. So it has been an education process for many Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders as well. Them imagining what this might look like. Some people perhaps feel like they... Don't have enough information or they don't like what they're hearing so far. I mean, sort of the things that Carly said as well. I mean, as I said, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people don't live in a vacuum. Mm-hmm. Their views aren't always so different to that of the general community in how they choose to vote yes or no. But I would just say the biggest difference I, I do see is that mistrust of government and authorities, I think, really influences some Aboriginal people to not trust this process and to not trust this model. There are some Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who don't want to be in the constitution at all. They don't want to be in what they would call the white man's document. That's a pretty strong view amongst some parts of the population and because of their experience, that's how they've come to have those views.
1: No referendum has gotten up without bipartisan support. There is no bipartisan support on this matter. What role do you think that has played during this period, having such a divide between the coalition and the government? One of the really interesting things
0: I have observed is that one of the main slogans of the No campaign, if you don't know, vote no, was actually used in the 1999 referendum as well. So that's obviously quite a potent message for Australians who
2: maybe aren't engaged, or are unsure, or think that this country works pretty well. It's a strategy that worked in 99 yeah. for, should we cut ties with the monarchy? And they squabbled over the model again, and yeah, Howard pushed the don't know, vote no. Mm. And yeah, it failed miserably. Sorry, I think I ended up a long way from what your question was. What no, okay. are we talking about again?
1: Just on another referendum. Yeah. Um, someone's asked, if we do get yes through, how will we know the voice is working for First Nations people?
2: accountable. Yeah. Noel Pearson again, he's on the Yes campaign. He says we will be accountable for our own outcomes this time around. You know, they'll have to report in and if things aren't working, the parliament has the power to tweak the way... The voice looks and operates, it has the power to do that. It is a tough one because, like, how do you measure empowerment?
0: Like, that's I don't really know how you do that. So, probably success will be measured on whether we see real changes to some of those closing the gap targets. And the reasons why some of those outcomes are really poor like, <coughs> one of the main goals of closing the gap is is to have all Indigenous babies born at a healthy birth weight so that they are more likely to live a healthier life. There's a lot of factors that influence those things and how empowerment filters down through like state legislation, state health services, federal health services, Aboriginal medical services to the care that Aboriginal people get. That's really hard to measure. Sometimes it's obvious, sometimes it's not. So I think it will be a difficult thing to measure. And I think it will be judged on the influence it has on pragmatic outcomes.
1: Last question. What do you want everyone here to walk away knowing? Presumably, if you haven't already pre-polled, we'll be voting on Saturday. So what do you want people to walk away knowing?
2: That, yeah, there are so many diverse views of First Nations people. We know that the only hard data we have is the poll that the government keeps talking about, that 80% of Aboriginal people want this. Can we still say that now? Those polls were from March. That was a long time ago. Oh, look, I don't know. You go. I guess my closing thought would just be this didn't come from nowhere. This
0: has been decades in the making, years in the making, months in the making. Don't just look at the campaign as you've seen it over the last six weeks, over the last 18 months. Remember this came from somewhere a long time ago. Thank you both so much for giving up your time tonight. It's great to see you all here engaged. It's, yeah, I can't believe it. Truly, thank you for being a lovely audience. I was getting lots of reassuring smiles through all of that.
1: Thanks very much for listening to this special episode and indeed this special week of our podcast, The Voice Explained. This is a generation-defining moment in Australia's history and we hope that we have provided some clarity in a time that has been filled with a lot of opinions and a lot of information. We'll be bringing you all the results from the referendum on Monday morning and from then on we'll be resuming our normal podcast format from there. Just a note as we head into the weekend, it has been a really tough week in the news for a number of reasons and you cannot notice the effect that it's having on your mental health at the time, but be really conscious about how you're consuming and where you're consuming that information from and we'll be back again with you on Monday.